G'day, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, the week ending Friday the 25th of November. We, Mon, Daniel and Bobby, broadcast live from Triple R every weekday morning. Coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear us talk about dinking. Have you ever been dinked? What's the etiquette? And has it ever got you into any trouble? Michael Harden for his food interlude gave us his top chef memoirs of all time, or chefoirs as nobody is calling them. <laughs> And with Bobby away, Mon and I gave advice in a new segment we call Breakfasters. Alison White and Stephanie Lake joined us to talk about monsters at the Malt House. And we're heading into the weekend, leaving our doors wide open. Triple R. I saw um, a student giving another student a dink on a bike on the way I was driving past the school. So there were heaps of kids everywhere. Uh, now, a dink on a bike, we know what a dink on a bike is, yes, when mm-hmm. you're... Um, call it and you're just giving another person a ride and you're squeezing them in somehow i think the original dink is sitting in the pole in between where the seat is and the handlebars oh at the front no 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 like inside so you are like kind of trapped inside the rider. Yeah, so in front of the person whose feet are on the wheel on the pedals yes yeah yeah yeah. but then also you can sit on the front of the handlebars oh Oh, dear oh dear have have you not seen that i I have but yeah does it ever end well? Well, well, this is the thing. This is what I want to ask you as well. Plus, also, if you have pegs on your wheels, um, then you can get someone on the mm. back as well. Yeah. So I think there are three main positions for dinking. Mm. There's the original one in the middle. Mm. There's the one at the front, the handlebars, and then one at the back, and you can kind of just put your feet on and then just hold the shoulders of yeah. your rider. Uh, have you been dinked before? And if no, you have, where have you been? I don't know if I actually have. Uh, I'm sure I have as a kid. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm thinking back to. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I reckon it was probably in front of the rider bef- between the handlebars. Maybe, yeah. but I, I, was, whatever, I always think of it as a back thing. What percentage of bicycles have dinking pegs, if that's what they're called? Yeah, well, not not many. And I remember back in the day doing them uh, – actually, no, I think a lot more do these days. Um, but back in the day, they wouldn't even be pegs, but you would somehow manage to put your feet – like if there was just a little bit coming out from yep. the wheel, you'd squeeze mm. onto that. That's where I've mostly done most of my dinking. On the back? Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, and I, I remember being on a bicycle and getting pulled over by the cops. Oh. And I thought, are we being pulled over because we're dinking? But it was because the person wasn't wearing a helmet. Yeah, But they, right. they had an exemption. But does the person being dinked need a helmet? I think you should. I don't think they, probably they need it do. more than the rider. But if you're getting dinked, it seems impromptu. Like, no one says, well, can you give course. me a dink home? No one getting a dink is wearing a <laughs> Preemptively, yeah. yeah. What do you think is the most dangerous position out of the three dinking spots? The front one. What do you think? Well, did you say sitting on the handlebars? Yeah, on the front. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I... I would say the middle. So I think with the front, because I have been in all oh, of these yeah. positions, the front, you can see when it's going down, so you jump the hell off that thing. Okay. If well, you're in true. the middle, you are stuck. You cannot escape, mm. and there are poles that could get, like if the handlebars mm. turn in, bang, mm. into your guts. Um. Mm. How do they look past you when they're driving? Uh, you kind of put your head down, don't you? Or right. you go to the side, maybe to the side. Yeah. yeah I yeah, like yeah. that sway movement that you yes. them on. So yes. like, a cook, like the cuckoo <laughs> in Santa Music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm with you now. Yeah, I, I just think you're, you're trapped. I, I've been dinked, dunk, anyway, um, in the middle and had many injuries. Whereas at the front, I'm just like, yeah, I'm off. I'm out of here. And the back, jump off as you well. You jump off. You're yeah, fine. Yeah, okay. Or even if you'd smashed into something, you're the last one. Doesn't the back fine. is probably the safest, right? I would say so. Because also if you're kind of, yeah, if you're kind of standing, crouching or whatever, yeah. 
Yeah, you're a bit safer. You just hop off before the chaos. Exactly. And then at the front, you like fling yourself to safety. Yes. Yeah, but the middle one, you're mired in it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You're going down Mm. with the rider. When you're on the back of a motorbike, that's not dinking, is it? No, that's I don't no. because there's a motor. I mean, it's the, I think the it, same principle. I think because there's enough room for two people to sit. Oh, I see. So I think oh, dinking yes. applies. You're just a passenger more. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you're an official when there's passenger. No room. Yeah. yeah. Um, a friend of mine used to. I'm not sure that she does it anymore, but she would. Uh, she had a, had a couple of kids. Has a couple of kids, and she would take them to school drop-offs, uh, and she would ride a bike, and it had a little cart at the back, so oh. she would just go straight past the traffic of school drop-off and pick up and get straight to the front thing, drop off her kids, and then ride home. I remember I used to live near her, and she would have a bell. She just loved this. I'm mm. like, And her kids were so young, they thought it was great as well. They weren't embarrassed. They, no way. They loved it. Mm. And, yeah, it would be done straight away. She would just go, pick them up, get them home. She's like, it would save her 20 minutes. What yeah. a life hack. It's so good. I see a bit of that around and yeah. stuff with, with kids. With primary school, you don't see anyone. Oh, you wouldn't see it in high school. You <laughs> no. wouldn't think. Um, but can I ask about, uh, you can't dink on a penny farthing, can you? And I ask because I've seen lots of them about now. No, well, really? what's what? lots? I'd say. One is too many. I'd say yes. four penny farthings a year. Okay. Different ones. I used to see one uh, during lockdown where when I would walk. I used to walk around Darabin, Darabin Creek or Darabin Parklands mm. or whatever. I would sometimes see someone on a penny farthing and I was like, come on. Well, We're uh, all having a hard enough time as it is. <laughs> I don't need to see you. On. But how do you how do you disembark from a penny farthing without falling over? Because yeah. that's it's got the same principles as dinking for me. It's like it's just it starts it go the middle is fine, but surely it ends badly. So you must have to hold the brakes and then like launch yourself off it, like leap. Like I'm thinking, you need to stand next to a tall gate and cling onto I think it. So. I was climb thinking, down like, the gate. if you say so the brake, you know, the brake, assuming is on the handlebars, you'd push yourself up like you would when you're getting out of a pool or something, off the handlebars and then jump down. I mean, this yeah. is why you shouldn't ride, and this is why bikes were developed <laughs> differently. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. You need a tree. I mean, you could do that, but it sounds like. Sounds more dangerous than dis- dismounting from a horse. I should have followed this guy to see and be like, get off. How do you get off? Yeah, yeah there must off. be a way to do it. Honestly, you get off but and on. N- no one's getting dinked on a penny farthing. No. Because that's, so that's, no one's asking. Do people ask for dinks or do they get offered dinks more? I think they get, oh, I think it's a combination of mm. both. You know, I, I once, um, when I was living in Blackwood, I got a dink from my brother's mate from the top of the hill down to the um, main shops. And. <laughs> A week later, my brother's mate said that his girlfriend broke up with him. What? And I was friends with her and I was like, hey, I heard you broke up with David. Why'd you break up with David? She goes, well, I saw him giving you a dink down the main road. I was like, what? (laughs) She said, you guys look like you were having a great time. (gasps) So she dumped him. She dumped him because we were having so much fun (laughs) getting dinked down the road. Maybe she needed to loosen up a bit. I think she did. And get dinked herself. And realise that I wasn't interested in David. I was interested in her. (laughs) (laughs) Melbourne's own. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Australian gourmet traveller Michael Harden joins us for our regular food interlude. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Now, you've been reading. I have been reading. It's sort of like, you know, instead of eating, mm. I'm sort of, that's my exercise. <laughs> do, you, you would, do you take a, when you dine alone, are you a magazine or a book? 
Oh, or nothing. Or nothing. Just a note. A lot of the time, nothing. I think one of the it's sort of like I got trained. I was I was um, in Italy years ago, and I was out on my own, and I was in a restaurant, and I was watching this old Italian guy that was beautifully dressed, sitting at a table, having having this like four course meal, and he didn't have a book. He didn't have anything. He just sat there and looked perfectly comfortable, had a chat with the waiter every now and again and just really enjoyed his food and was just kind of in the moment. And I kind of like, oh, that he's my template. Mm. Wow. I've, never, I've never reached that level of style and sophistication. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, Multiple you know, courses is what makes it so impressive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was just sort of like and just so comfortable in, in his surroundings. So I tried to take less. You know, of course, there's always the, the phone is mm. always going to be uh, a distraction. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. What an image. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no wonder beautiful. it stayed with you. Damn. <laughs> um, so what are we talking today? Well, I'm talking about uh, – I want to talk about chef memoirs today, So, which is sort of a different uh, – like a different genre, I suppose, than food memoirs generally. There's sort of some really – odd terms around food memoirs, there's sort of, you know, people always have to make up names that sort of like, you know, because there's, you can talk about a, a food war. Oh, right. Oh, nice. Uh, the food war. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, food uh, the food gastro- <laughs> gastrography. Oh, hello. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. trying. So, you know, yeah. it's like, they're really trying, but just let's just call it a memoir about food. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I, I'm particularly interested in chef memoirs um, because I think that they're kind of a, a an amazing way to sort of get an insight into restaurants and everything. And sort of particularly, um, you know, you're looking at like Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain is kind of like the OG of the new chef memoirs, which was like a, a warts and all kind of way of looking at restaurants behind the scenes, bad behaviour, you know, drugs and sex and, you know, rock mm. and roll mm. in the kitchen, those sort of things. And it's sort of like it changed the way because Bourdain sort of deliberately did it because he was a chef um, when he wrote that book. He was still working as a chef. And he was really anti the whole food celebrity scene and um, the way that he thought that it sanitised what a restaurant was. It was all sort of like these lovely surfaces and beautiful food and everything. And so he wanted to talk about how it really was. So, it, like, you know, the the um, the subtitle of the book is Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly. Mm. So, yeah, and so he sort of made this thing where it was kind of like, you know, you saw the bad behaviour and the dangerous nature of the thing and sort of to an extent mental illness and, you know, those sort of things that we're kind of now 20 years after the book was published have really addressed. So I think in some ways you can sort of see that shining a spotlight on those sort of things, even though he did it for sort of comic and shock effect, actually sort of like revealed for the first time the restaurant industry as it mm. was. And much imitated, perhaps. Well, everything since has been like, you know, the, like he, he sort of has defined the the chef memoir because mm-hmm. of that. So it's like it's the chef memoir has become a very tell-all sort of thing. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, now about, you know, bad behaviour and like, uh, you know, there's there's one, another of the great um, chef memoirs that everybody should read whether or not you're interested in food or not is a book called Blood, Bones and Butter by a woman called Gabrielle Hamilton. Um, she's a chef in New York and uh, she has a restaurant in East Village called Prune. Um, she's sort of very the well Chef's known. Table episode about that. Yes, yeah, yeah. And she is like, she's a like just a fab, fabulous writer, just number one. And this story sort of like an, an her uh, her subtitle is the inadvertent education of a reluctant chef, and it starts off in childhood and kind of her sort of neglect from her parents who 
but imbued in her as sort of a love of food. They used to have these barbecues at their place in New Jersey where they would like put whole lambs over spits and there was like, you know, they would buy wheels of cheese at a time and everything. And then their marriage broke up and they just sort of abandoned her about, and her and her brother about 15 and left mm. them to their own devices. And she sort of ended up working in a restaurant as a dishwasher and sort of moved into food through that way. But uh, her take on the restaurant industry is really, really interesting and um, particularly sort of the whole idea of women chefs, you know, it's sort of like the way that she sort of resisted her whole career being put into the women chef ghetto. Like, you're very good for a woman chef, no, you know. It's like it's not a chef, it's a woman chef, you know. Yeah. So there's sort of some sort of, you know, tag on that and everything. But there's like a scene in that book that really kind of got me was she was she was talking about a, sh- a, a shift at Prune um, and it was a very busy brunch restaurant, queues out the door and everything. Tiny kitchen, you know, it was like it was just a military operation and... Half an hour before service, her um, ex-Marine sous chef had an anxiety attack and she had to pop him. She got in a cab with him, popped him to hospital to make sure he was okay. Then she came back, did the whole service on her own and then there's a scene of her at the end scraping pancake batter off the bottom of the fridge after the shift and everything and then she reveals that she was seven months pregnant. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, this kind of like idea of this like superhuman kind of effort that she had to do this whole thing. So Mm. that was kind of when I got totally hooked on that book. Yeah. and the idea also, I suppose, that kitchens are so extreme, it can fell an ex-marine. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, this is the thing and it's sort of like, and there's other, you know, there other ones on, on the list. Like there was a mo- more recent one by um, David Chang, who um, he's quite a famous um, chef. He had the Momofuku, he's, well, he still has the Momofuku sort of chain in America. There was one in Sydney for a while. Um, he's got, you know, Netflix specials and podcasts and, you know, books and you name it and uh, has on the surface looks very very successful but like his one is very much like you know it's quite a harrowing read because it sort of goes into um his dealings with his mental illness he's been diagnosed as bipolar Mm. um and then you sort of see like a lot of the stuff about his like often um really bad interactions with his staff you know it's sort of explosions of anger and you know kind of humiliation and all of those sort of stuff so in between these like amazing descriptions of food and the successful restaurants and everything you've got this sort of light and dark thing happening so it's kind of it is is sort of like these these are the way these memoirs are it's sort of like it's very much about these books but sometimes it sort of almost feels like they're like one-upping each other oh really you know, it's kind of like there's a little bit of the torture porn kind of yeah, thing going yeah. on in them it's sort of I think and having worked in kitchens myself well not in kitchens but in restaurants <clears throat> I would you know kitchens that leave that to the chefs but um you know there there is there's a lot of this stuff that goes on. So I think it's improving though. And I think sometimes that these memoirs are kind of a way of teaching people how not to do things as much as a how-to kind of way of doing things. So I mean it's I mean they seem to romanticize the torture a little mm. bit. Oh uh, god, yeah. You know, Bourdain with his, you know, we're a special band of pirates. It's like I hated that book when I first read it because I was still working in restaurants at the time mm. and chefs held no romance for me whatsoever. And he was like, we chefs, we're, you know, we're kind of these banditos and everything. It's like, no, you're just a bunch of grubby assholes. You know, <laughs> also, wasn't the um, – isn't that what happened? Did Jock, the Australian or the Scottish Australian, <laughs> did he – was he was it a memoir that kind of revealed him that was just full of yeah, lies? Yeah, full of – yeah, yeah. Because he was copying that – 
method. Oh, of, definitely. It was sort I'm of like he, he also sort of like, you know, kind of uh, this is just my opinion, but it's sort of like he also seemed to just paraphrase train spotting. Yeah. So, you know, for, <laughs> sort of borrow that for some colour. It's like, um, God forbid you just talk about your life as a chef, you have to throw in some heroin for good measure. Exactly. You've always, there's got to be a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction or a substance abuse mm. or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. So. so, what other angles are there in the food memoir beyond look at this extreme punishing environment? There's that a great, survived? there's an absolutely brilliant book by Gay Bilson. Um, who she had um, Barara Waters in Sydney and also Benelong started off in Melbourne, moved to Sydney, sort of like kind of created the casual bistro sort of thing up in Sydney. And she's got a book called Plenty. It's been out for a a while now. Um, Plenty Digressions on Food. And it is such a superb book. She's a great thinker. And she talks about... She talks about restaurants in there and her experience, but she also talks a lot about food, a lot about flavour, a lot about, you know, cultures in restaurants, but cultures outside, festivals, personalities. And she's got this really clear-eyed, sort of almost brutal way of looking at things. Like, if she doesn't like something, you're going to know about it. (laughs) And she's quite scary. I'd be be scared to meet her in person, but I'm a great admirer from a distance Mm. because I'm a chicken. But uh, that's a a real... Because that's sort of... Because she's not necessarily a chef, even though she has worked in kitchens, but it's kind of like it's a broader like way of looking at things there's another another book called um our lady of perpetual hunger by a woman called lisa donovan who's uh she's a like a baker and a pastry chef in america and it is a book about her um her rise into she ended up you know she was basically self-taught and she um became like this incredibly famous traditional baker southern baker in and she worked in some amazing restaurants michelin starred and everything but her her look is sort of like there's very personal stuff you know you hear everything about her life um but like the whole restaurant thing about it's it's a really good handbook for women wanting to go into the industry to sort of see some of the some of the hurdles that because you know it is it's a different thing mm. you know it's kind of like you know because the, the women ship women chef memoirs that you read that's there, there's a lot about juggling families and home life and everything whereas a lot of the male ones it's all about just concentrating on on the the restaurant itself and their victorious ascent to you know god (laughs) yeah uh and now when's your book coming out uh, yeah, well, it How is. How much it's heroin is in it? <laughs> so much heroin. Sort of like, that's basically all it's about. It's a how-to. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does, <laughs> if I, I, we were talking very early in the show, does Paul Me count the A.A. Gill's memoir? Yeah, I think like you know, there, there's like you know, there's a, a lot. I know of, that's a chef memoir. There's a lot. Oh, you're yeah, talking the, chef. Yeah, memoir. there's a lot of brilliant food memoirs around, you know, and A.O. Gill, of course, is one of the greats, you know, it's kind of, you want to, you want to be reading him, um, you know, M.F.K. Fisher is another one from, a, you know, she, she was writing in the 30s and 40s, but some of the most beautiful writing about food, she's got a whole book called, called Consider the Oyster, mm. yeah. and it is just, and all she talks about is the oyster, and she's so clever and so funny, and it's so, like, you read it and you would never believe that it was, like, her writing is almost 100 years old. Yeah. It's, like, it's fresh and clear and beautiful. So. Um, have you got a hard and fast, My Life in Food? Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's sort of like, thank you, I'll borrow that. <laughs> uh, I'll dedicate it to you. Uh, thank you. The pun's all yours. Michael Harden, thanks as always. <laughs> no worries. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I like advice columns. I don't know about you. I can't go past them. Um, yeah, I like them from a voyeur perspective. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of um, hideous situations out there mm. and it's there's a touch of, ugh, you know, Ooh. wouldn't want to be that guy or whatever. Um, so I do 
tend to gravitate towards them. I thought we could – I could, might throw some at you that mm. I've seen in the last week. <laughs> okay. Uh, these are just collated to various advice columns and we'll call this breakfasters. Ah, okay. Mm. People are welcome to tell us their problems. Tell us your problems and we'll guarantee that we can't help. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what about I've been pretending to like football for years because it seemed the thing to do. Can I stop now? Yeah, pertinent because I'm sure there are a lot – I wonder if there are a lot of people doing that now with the World Cup on. Um, and it's a common thing you hear if you live in Melbourne that it's a very good thing to know in a workplace if you follow AFL, mm. just to be able to talk about it. This is something you can talk about with colleagues if you have nothing else in common. Mm. And it's it's helped. I've leaned into that. I think like you fake it till you make it. Yeah. It's always a shame when tropes change mm. because you can lean on a trope, like, you know, a Collingwood supporter is X, Y, Z. Yeah. Or, you know, a Melbourne supporter goes to the snow. Yeah. Whatever. But if when tropes change, it's like, oh, yeah. I've got to re-up my reference points. I think there was a New Zealand prime minister who, you know, would – learn to play golf because that's where you would close business deals. It's always awkward seeing, you know, there was conjecture that Scott Morrison, despite being closely associated with the Cronulla Sharks. No interest. Before no interest the in Sharkies. No, not at all. And that's what um, Lech Blaine talked about in his quarterly essay. It's all absolute ruse just to sort of fight, to tap into that market before he wanted to become PM and it worked. Yeah. But if you don't have an interest in the World Cup, if you still watch that Australia goal this morning. That Yeah, it gets the blood going. If that surely. doesn't get you over the line... Yeah, so I don't think you can stop. Yeah, I don't think you can be your authentic self. Oh, do you mean, yeah, is that what you're saying? Well, the question was like, can I stop now? Yeah. No, sorry, it's fine. You, you know, you don't have to like know the ladder, but it's it's a nice little way to make conversation. I mean, I don't know. So you can't stop pretending. I, I agree. Yeah. I think you have to continue the ruse <laughs> that you have mainstream interests. Just you have to, yeah, you have to acknowledge that this, um, that, that football, whether it's AFL or the World Cup or whatever. Yeah interests a lot of people um, and even though it might not be your cup of tea, just play along. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of – if you get involved in a conversation with someone who's passionate, sometimes all they need is just a few generic prompts. Yeah. You know, like, oh, gee whiz, or wow, oh, yeah. How about those dogs? Exactly. (laughs) And you can bluff your way through. Okay, what about – it's springish, please, what's the definitive rule on shorts? Well, (laughs) um, I wish Digger was here because he, I don't think, owns a pair of pants. No. Maybe for like his wedding or something, but he wears shorts every day of the year. Mm. Uh, even, and it's so bizarre when he comes in here when it's the dead of winter and it's still dark and he'll be wearing shorts. Um, so it depends. Yeah. I don't mean to – this is going to come out wrong, but uh, Tigger really pulls shorts off. Quite the opposite, not literally at yes. all. Yeah. Uh, whereas I don't – in fact, I'm not sure what the present fashion is. Yeah, I often wonder that with um, like workplaces where you have a bit more of a dress code. So, where, you know, as a teacher or whatever, when it gets really hot, I often wonder with the male employees, if they have a strict dress code, can you, you can't rock up in, a, in like a Bermuda suit or whatever with the no, shorts. No, exactly. It's a shame. I uh, think you should be able to. Yeah, and then if you wear shorts enough, especially if you predict the weather incorrectly, you become the short guy. Yeah, so because, oh, a couple of you are wearing shorts today. Yeah. Didn't you know it's only going to be blah, blah, blah? I don't know how high. I'd like a ruling on this season how high they should be. Above the knee or on your waist, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, above the knee. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not Harry High Pants. <laughs> but, yeah, because uh, I don't know. Or whether the, the height of the short depends on who you are mm. or maybe the hirsuteness of your legs. <laughs> 
I got a, a text from someone who uh, worked at an elite private boys school and they said the teachers were allowed to wear shorts but only if they paired it with knee-high socks. Get out. <laughs> so I don't know how popular that would be. Oh, what an embarrassing tan line. <laughs> well, then you just look like one of the students. <laughs> It's like you're cosplaying as a, <laughs> totally. as a teenage boy. Uh, okay, this person with a query flies interstate regularly for work and is required to book economy class and was on the same flight as one of their bosses the other day and they were seated in business class. The letter writer says, I don't think it is fair. I was seating the whole flight. Is it standard for different travel classes to be booked for different levels in an organisation? Yep. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I would be – yeah, I mean, I don't know what this organisation is. Um, and it would depend, but I feel like if it's your boss, you would. I would kind of expect that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I know also know someone who's a musician, or you talk to sometimes musicians, and if they're like a solo artist and they have a band, the solo artist who's like the known person, you know, will fly business or first, and the band will just slum it in economy. And I was remember hearing that, thinking that's hard going, but then you realise, well, if you're the person, if you're the celebrity, um, you're the one who then has to get off the plane and do like. 12 interviews and be fresh and ready. And, yeah. But if I was the, you know, drummer or whatever and I'm slumming it in the economy and watching the other person turn a different direction when you get on the plane, it'd be a bit, a bit That tough. would suck for team bonding. Yeah. Do you reckon, say, for instance, the e, I mean, the E Street band's all flying, especially oh. with their $7,000 tickets. <laughs> yeah. So think of another band, I suppose. But the would you, if you were the lead singer or – you were the solo artist with a band. Would you just not tell them that you're on the same flight and try and get away with it? <laughs> you see your, see everyone in the lounge? Oh. <laughs> Bump into them at the carousel. Ooh, I'm uh, turning left on the flight. <laughs> we were talking about this sport thing. Can I stop pretending I'm interested in sport? And someone was told by their colleague recently, I don't like sports, so if you start talking about it, you need to tell me when you start talking about <laughs> work again because I'm not going to pay attention. <laughs> so I'm just going to tune out of the conversation. Give me a tap on the shoulder. Oh, that is following <laughs> your truth, isn't it? To say that to a colleague. Like I'm not gonna pretend, but I'm I'm here and ready when you here when you're ready to talk about something I care about. This is Oscar Wildean in its truth, I think. Shorts go on the day after you say you should have worn shorts. Mm, okay. You you learn your lesson once. Yeah, you learn your lesson. It, it's like I should have worn shorts yesterday. It's like when you buy food for a, to satisfy a craving from last week. Oh yeah. And, and that's what wearing shorts is. It's like, I should have worn shorts. I'll make up for it today. And then, you you know, you've screwed up. And Landscaper also said they haven't worn pants this winter to work for two years. I assume they mean long pants. Dead set. Um, yeah, uh, so it, must be, it must be something with the profession. If you're in horticulture, no pants allowed. Exactly. Uh, there's another person who's got a problem whose girlfriend's parents are getting a divorce after 25 years of marriage and she's taking it pretty hard. But to be honest, I didn't really think it would be a big deal for her. She's always told me that her parents seem unhappy and that she would not like to be in a marriage like theirs. Uh, I can't understand why she'd be upset with their decision to split. How do I show her the proper emotional support? Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe you should like interrogate your own empathy deficit. Yeah. Like my loser girlfriend is upset that her family is falling apart. Um, how do I get her to snap out of it? Maybe you should leave her. Yeah. That probably wouldn't help actually if she's <laughs> struggling with that. It's a funny thing, isn't it? To be like, oh, but you said their marriage was bad. It's like, yeah, but it's still... You know. Yeah, but you'd ra- sometimes you'd rather complain about it than for it to end. Yeah, like I want it to be there and yeah. to be bad. Yeah. Uh, but I think that is that is a curly one. Mm. You would just go with whatever she reckons, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think it maybe this is the thing. There's a um, 
there's like a time limit or an empathy limit clearly on this where initially all you're doing is saying, I'm so sorry, that's awful, I'm providing support and then like two months go past and they're talking about it all the time and you go, okay, let's let's start building some blocks. With yes, this. and I think when your parents get divorced at different times in your life, it's mm. more maybe in your 20s, you yeah, you don't get the empathy that you might. If you were 10. Yes, yeah. and perhaps it impacts you exactly uh, in very similar or identical ways. There is a listener on the sport question about <laughs> do I have to pretend interest. Uh, these are some go-to lines they've mm. prepared. Uh, they're a young team with a lot of talent. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. Oh, very good. That's good. Or oh, they're an older team with solid eggs. They need to get some younger blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they've been playing well, potential contenders. If not this year, then next. And it never seems to fail no matter what the team is. Wow, that is very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could all learn from that. Um, it's also good just to know one, like a couple of key player names. I oh, think. yeah. So for anyone who isn't interested in the World Cup, just to remind you that Goodwin is the Australian who scored the goal this morning. Great. That'll see you through for the rest of the tournament, I reckon. Yeah, exactly. It's the only goal we're going to score. Yes. And just finally, uh, my roommate has a new girlfriend and she's constantly at our apartment. I always feel like a third wheel and that they are rubbing their new love in my face. That's probably perhaps an awkward turn of phrase. Uh, I don't know what to do, but uh, I need to talk to them because if I don't, I think I'll snap at them soon, which would be – that would obviously be worse than addressing directly what should I say to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what should you say to them? I mean – it depends what exactly rubbing your love in their face entails, you know. So um, get a room might be a good one. Oh, yeah. Or if you have to vacate the communal space. Ugh, yuck. Yeah. But I, I'm, you know, I, I'm loosening up around public displays of affection. Oh, good. I think after COVID isolation. You're just happy that it exists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you t- it's... you tongue pash at that bus stop. Yeah, great, and I'm going to sit real close and just watch and congratulate you. And make sure you're having a nice time and talk about footy. <laughs> Triple R. Monsters on a Malt House is described as a thrilling fever dream and adrenaline-filled collaboration between our next two guests. Alison White has worked across film and TV and theatre with a preposterous list of credits and awards, including Green Room, Helpman and Sydney Theatre Awards, as well as Logies and Astro Awards for her work on screen. And, of course, we have Stephanie Lake, who is the uh, extraordinary director of the Stephanie Lake Company, and it's a delight to have both with us in the studio now. Uh, Stephanie and Alison, <laughs> I lied. Welcome to Breakfasters. <laughs> Thank you morning. so much. You lied, you lied about it being a delight? Or? Yeah, no, I lied about them both being here. Uh, Alison, can we uh, start with you? Can I also say uh, Monster sounds terrifying? Is it? Apparently. I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is going to be a bit thrilling. <laughs> it does feel like, it does feel scary, doesn't it, Steph? Yeah, it I does. Mean, I mean, I, like, yeah, the... the, the, the the tale itself is pretty terrifying. You know, it's a, it's about um, this woman who, this uh, sister that climbs down into this sinkhole and needs to be found. So a woman and a caver go down into the sinkhole and try and locate her. And it's their journey into the deep, dark underworld and what they, they uh, encounter there. Mm. So, um, yeah, and what they bring up back with them, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it is, uh, it, is, it is a pretty terrifying tale um, and very much fun to do. 
<laughs> well, Stephanie, how do you uh, bring life to this through dance? Yeah, well, I mean, what a delight to work on something so juicy. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so there are three incredible dancers in this show, Josie Weiss, Kimball Wong and Samantha Hines, who are regular collaborators of mine, extraordinary performers. Uh, so we've, yeah, this is, this is a collaborative work that Matt and I have been talking about for many, many years, I've got to say. And, and we actually started developing it um, pre-pandemic, so, so it's a long time coming. Mm. But we shared an ambition to create a work that was equal, a kind of a story told equally through movement and text, through choreography and, and, um, and words. And, um, and it's been just the most terrific challenge. And I guess the dancers do lots and lots of things. They move the narrative along, but they also express... Um, subterranean things, psychological places, and um, and and take you out of your head, I mm. guess, and into the body, mm. and um, and that's what's made this project so exciting. Alison, what can dancers do that you can't convey <laughs> as an actor? Steph, <laughs> you want to answer that? Oh my God, honestly, they, these people are unbelievable athletes. I what I've got to do the challenge for me is to be able to pick up my jaw and keep talking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Alison. Well, like, like, likewise from our side, I've got to say, we're in awe of you. You know that. <laughs> we are uh, look, we're having an enormous amount of fun with this tale and um yeah, it 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 it, it, it just um it's such a forehander up there. Well, yes. it's more than a forehander, but it, it, it's um it feels it feels the, the the story feels so supported by by each discipline and um, and it keeps propelling it forward uh, by each discipline that in, that includes the composing and the sound design and the lighting and obviously the direction and the choreography so um, it, it, it's just propelling this tale forward um, and it's high octane it's got it's adrenaline pulses through. <gasps> Not only for performers on stage, but I think I think for the audience as well. Mm. So, um, and it's 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 you know just over an hour of like pretty um, pretty pulsy stuff, isn't it, Steph? There's a yeah. there's a definite high octane pulse between the um, underneath the whole thing. And that 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 includes the music, mm. the the dance, and the, and the language. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a beautiful experience for people. Terrifying, but beautiful. <laughs> um, like a lot of creative works, this has been in the works for years. Um, Alison, has, has Alison, have you been on board the whole time or how, how much of it has been collaborative? No, I, I came on board probably about four weeks before we started rehearsal. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so it started rehearsal and then got locked down and, and we, uh, there were... Uh, Pam Rabe and three other dancers started rehearsal about a year and a half ago. Is that right, Steph? Yeah, that's that? right. Yeah, it's been a full um, cast change a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, a full yeah. cast time a couple of times. So, mm. um, so yeah, I'm the lucky one that gets to show it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I lucked out. Um, but it's um, it's so nice to do something that's. Uh, I, look, I, I, I have to say that there's, at the moment, because, you know, it, it's been COVID and, you know, there's not a lot of risk being taken, I suppose, and it's so nice to be doing one that's been created by our creatives mm. um, and our story. It's going to be our story. It's our voice. Um, and it's not an import. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's ours. Um, and it's new. And it's, 
and it's fresh and it's um it it's uh it hasn't we haven't been seeing a lot of it so i'm really feel, feel very privileged to be presenting it you know yeah stephanie how do you uh create a sense of menace through dance and is that fun <laughs> of course it is. Uh, yeah, it's all fun. Yeah, it's funny. The last few works I've made have been really kind of joyful. So this is this is a real one eighty for me. But it, but it feels it feels familiar. I feel like um, it comes naturally to all of us. I've got to say this this kind of monstrousness. I've I've always been drawn to grotesqueness in the body, sitting alongside things that are really ordered and um, organised. And But I, I really like recklessness and I like risk and and I like the sense of the body kind of being torn apart. Mm. I, I find that really exciting. So this is, this is a, a, a comfy place for all of us, I'd say. And I've picked these performers particularly because I knew that they... They're very theatrical. They've got they're very expressive performers physically, and also they stuff splashes across their faces. Um, mm. So yeah, it's 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 been really interesting. But we we work in the same way we do on on any on any work. We just we start with with the concept. We start to build material together. We we go on all sorts of. Um, explore all sorts of kind of tasks and 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 games and and eventually start to make the work together it's really really collaborative with mm. the dancers mm. um but mm. i was going to say before it's it's so exciting working with Alison because she's a totally physical performer she's a dancer in her spirit and so um it does feel like it doesn't really feel like a separation between actor and dancers it does feel like you were saying it's a real quartet and it is yeah. the, the dancers are acting, and the actor is dancing, and and the, there's not so much of a divide. It's really integrated, and mm. that feels exciting. It feels, it feels really integrated. Doesn't yeah, it, it, it really, really does. Integrated. Yeah, mm. and I, yeah. I don't think we could have expected that uh, to the to the extent that it that it is there. I think, um, yeah, for Matt and I, we were curious about how those things would intersect and and I think in our mind we imagined them more separate but it's actually the worlds have really blended Mm. in an exciting way. For both of you with a post-show what's it like post-show I know this hasn't been staged yet but does it change depending on the tenor of what you're putting on like for instance Alison if you're in a comedy are you more light-hearted after the show is there a come down after something like Monsters? Um Look, I, I, I have done a similar show called Bloody Chamber with Matt and um, that was a solo voice as well with Three Harpists and it was an Angela Carter adaptation of um, the Bluebeard story and that was a terrifying tale and it was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how light I felt afterwards after terrifying folk. It was really, uh, you know, the, it feels really satisfying. It feels really satisfying because I think... You've, you've been able to lead people down safely mm. um, down an emotional journey and, um, and, and knowing that there's always a wink behind it as well, mm. but giving them a thrill, giving them the thrill of it. And it can happen in theatre beautifully. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm really excited to feel it with an audience on Thursday night because we haven't quite had one yet. So mm. really excited to, to, yeah, take them on that journey. Um, yeah, and yeah. Steph- I, I'm sure it's going to be fun. And <laughs> Stephanie, I just quickly want to ask about now that uh, the, the 
collaboration over Zoom maybe is that phase is winding down, but you've proven to yourself that you can do it mm. and what, you've received standing ovations over Zoom. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I've got a, a big project called Colossus, which I created in 2018, which is a, a, a show for 50 dancers. And it was, um, yeah, it was, it, it's ended up touring all over the world and being performed by 50 dancers in each place it gets performed. So it's become this kind of... <laughs> phenomenon um that's been very unexpected and really really thrilling and rewarding but yeah during COVID we we had tours lined up all over the globe and and of course many of them were postponed and that was really heartbreaking but but um we were really lucky that that the incredible theatre in Paris still wanted to do it and they suggested that we run all the rehearsals over Zoom, which was just so bonkers. And I initially said no, and then I came around and said, okay, you know, it's better than cancelling it. And so, yes, we did, um, we taught the show to 57 dancers in Paris over Zoom from our homes and a little studio in Melbourne. And and it was the first show back on stage at Theatre Chao in Paris, and um, it was incredible. And we ended up doing it in the same way in at the Taipei National Theatre and Hong Kong International Festival, same thing, mm-hmm. 50 dancers in both those places. So really a, a project I, none of us could have anticipated, but but an amazing international tour without getting on a plane. Yeah, amazing. Crazy, <laughs> crazy, oh, crazy, the, the crazy. The junkets are over. Yeah. <laughs> No, 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 please, no. Uh, Well, if you want to see the work of Stephanie Lake and Alison White, Malthouse Theatre and Stephanie Lake Company are premiering Monsters, a chilling thriller featuring Alison. It starts tomorrow night. Yes, first previews tomorrow, official opening on Saturday and it runs until December 11th. Brilliant. For information and tickets, head to malthousetheatre.com.au. Alison White and Stephanie Lake, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. I was with friends yesterday. We were uh, leaving this venue and one of my cars, uh, one of my friend's cars, front door was open as we were walking back to the cars. I went, oh, shit, looks like your door's open. Has someone broken into your car? Um, And she went, ah, nah, that'll be me. (laughs) She didn't leave her door unlocked. She left it open. <laughs> so she she had she she was running a little bit late and she had a nine month old and she was getting <laughs> in the car. <laughs> no, she took the nine months old. But that was what distracted her from closing the door. Never, I mean, I've, I've heard of a car door, and it was on a main road. And anyway, I was on a ro- I'm sorry, I'm just picturing an underground car park or something. No, this was on. So it, it was on uh, Mount Alexander Road, <laughs> Moody Ponds. <laughs> like it was, it was a main road. I'm like, how? Even just the whoosh of the cars. To, oh, I guess I'd be going against it, so they'd be pushing it out even more. Anyway, uh, nothing was taken from the car. Everything was fine, and yeah, thankfully the baby was with her um, when she came inside. Um, but I was trying to think of other times. Because, like, we were all just like, oh, that is so whitey. Oh, oh, okay. She's just, like, she'll lose her passport. So it's not a baby and... brain, <laughs> even the no, baby's nine months old or whatever. No, not at all. Um, that, that, that's just kind of her. But, I mean, I, I couldn't judge her too much years ago because we were talking about it and kind of laughing. And then my friend reminded me. She said, remember when you house sat my house many years ago? Um, and I was house sitting her house and then I remember – for the week, she was away. Uh, I left on a Friday and I was going straight to work uh, and I was in a bit of a rush and she called me at work. She's like, hey, are you okay? 
was like, oh, welcome back. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Why's that? She said, oh, you left my front door wide open. <laughs> Just wondered if you were all right. What the hell happened? I said, I am so sorry. Oh, my God. She's like, not even unlocked. Wide open. <laughs> Oh my god! I'm so sorry. Anyway, surprisingly, she got me to house it again after that. But I was very—I'd made sure that it didn't happen again. Um, I used to live in the country. I've spoken about living in Blackwood, and during the day we would never lock our house. That was just a thing. Mm. I remember coming home from school, and if the door was locked, it was like, oh, how inconvenient! Where the hell is the mm. key for this place? Um, if, of course, if it was at night or if we were going out in the evening, it would be locked. But just during the day. Yeah, people would just walk in all the time. And we live next door to family as well, so people would literally just walk in all the time. Wow. This still happens. It does, yeah. But that's like the, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Melbourne and that was what it was like growing up. And then I yeah. realized for, for us, I'd come home from school and the door would be open. Um, and not always someone was home as well. Yeah, right. And, and then I realized that was unusual. Like I was in the suburbs, but it was... The door was unlocked or open? Sometimes open. Like the wire door might be closed, but the front door, like, you know, the front door might yeah. be open. Um, I feel like Sometimes open, dad was home, sometimes not. Isn't open counterintuitively safer than unlocked? Because oh. if it's open, someone who would be up to no good goes, well, They're people are in home. and out. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember once I was... And I, I've done that once... Um, as an adult in my own home where I was going out, I think I was going walking somewhere. And so on my way out, I started like watering the plants or whatever. So kind of, it was this temporary, you know, if you go out to water the plants, you think you're coming back in. So I'd left the door open, but then I just continued on. Yes. And so I came back home and there was this guy who had just, just left. He was like, a, he was like a charity door knocker or I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, in disguise. Yep. Yeah. And he was, he, I just saw him walking walking out of my driveway apart. I couldn't tell if he'd been in there or not, but he was kind of looking a bit puzzled. And he so, and then I walked into my house and realised I'd left the front door open. So he'd obviously gone up to the door and knocked yeah. and no one was there and the door was open. And so he was like, what if I stumbled across? But thankfully he was a good citizen and didn't rob me, at least not that I ever found out. Not that mm. you knew of. Mm. Yes, he was very subtle about the things he stole. That's good. <laughs> the, the, and did, is it a concern when it's like a car door is open, does anyone worry about the mental health of the person? <laughs> yeah, or? I would. I think if it was anyone else, we would have, but it was just like, ah, oh, that's just why. Oh. And she wasn't concerned about it at all. She was just like, oh, well. that just the bat- Car battery was fine, no problem. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I don't think there was an interior light that was left on or anything like that. So it was <laughs> it was actually okay. That's Wait. why they had the light. Maybe that's part of the, you know. So you she needed open. it. Yeah. I was living in Fitzroy and every t- time I would go to my car, which I'd park on the street, it would the handle would deteriorate <laughs> through people trying to oh, do whatever. Do it. Yeah, it was just a gradual decline. <laughs> and the aerial of the car would like gradually diminish as it got ripped off or whatever. <laughs> like it literally every morning it would deteriorate in front of your eyes. Wow. So you locked that every time? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But then... Uh, you know, the other, when you, I think the times where you go back to your car, I know this doesn't happen to everybody except for, is it Whitey? Yes. And me. Is <laughs> like, you go back to the car and there's your wallet on the front seat. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's happened. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. And it's like dodged a bullet. Yeah. Completely. Or your phone or, yeah, for sure. And more than one occasion, my car has been, um, broken into it and they've looked for stuff and there's been nothing of value in there. Like it's been oh. in the driveway, it's been on the street. Um, I can think of three times where that's happened. Um, and one time I was sitting on the front porch and a guy came and 
didn't know I was there. And there's like this dodgy looking guy and then he kind of came up and touched the boot and I was like, oh. hey. <laughs> and then he me. ran off and got into a car with the number plates that were blacked out. Oh, really? It was really scary. And I was like, I don't even know how to report you because your car like doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. So were you tempted looking... to, I, I know you were just acting in the moment, but were you tempted to let it play out a little bit more to gather more evidence? <laughs> well, in retrospect, I was like, oh, what if he, yeah, but then. He didn't look like the sort of guy you want to confront any more than that. So I'm glad no. he got spooked. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you did the right thing. And there. ran off. Definitely. Because yeah. there was a period there where the street I was living in, I think, maybe had 20 robberies in a month. <gasps> and I, but because I was too young to drive, if they were s- scoping out our joint, I didn't have any evidence of my having left. So normally there'd be lots of cars on the driveway. Yeah. And so if, when they're all gone, they mm. go... Now's the time. And the phone would always ring Ooh. and I would answer it and then they would hang up. <gasps> yeah. So they have the local numbers. Yeah. I guess because you could find that you out, could. couldn't you? Yeah. Exactly. Oh. So I just feel like my um, provincialism saved our house from being robbed. Yeah, it did. And <laughs> well done, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm sorry about Whitey. I, I really – and nothing – look, Whitey can get away with it now, but – at some point, people are going to worry about cognitive decline. I think so. And has anything bad ever come of this? Has she ever come back to a car and it's like it's open, but also everything is stolen or a house or something? Uh, th- there's definitely been some things that have happened to Whitey. Like she did a road trip to Perth, and then as they were camping in Perth, their car got stolen. So they <laughs> thankfully they had to fly back. It's like who wants to do that drive twice? <laughs> but yeah, that's that's just something that has happened a few times. But the good thing is. Doesn't phase her. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't phase her. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website. 